word. James chapter 3 is where we're looking this morning. We're continuing our study in James. This is a unique section between the use of the tongue that we've been talking about and then going right into chapter 4, which is where James is going to confront fighting that's going on in the church. And James is tackling what I'm calling the forgotten war that goes on behind the scenes. And let me read verses 13 through 18 just to set our time together. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I'm framing this section up under the idea of that there is a forgotten war out there. And it's a spiritual war. It's a demonic realm that is behind the scenes lurking under everything that is happening around us. It's a warfare that we don't wage with flesh and blood, but we wage against it with the wisdom of God. Look at verse 15. This is how James sort of frames the scene. He's talking about wisdom that's from above, that's full of meekness, and then a wisdom that is down from, that does not come down from above, verse 15, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It's as if James is sort of raising the window shade and saying, listen, there is meek wisdom and humble wisdom, and then there is this whole other realm that can enter into the church, and it's a wisdom that doesn't come down from above. It's the wisdom that comes up from earthly thinking and unspiritual thinking, and even that which is demonic. James is sort of drilling down into the earth, into the unspiritual, and into the unseen realm here and exposing things for what they really are. It's easy to forget that we as a country are still fighting wars around the world in Iraq and even Afghanistan, isn't it? It's easy to sort of fall asleep on that. These days in the news, you rarely hear about our troops about casualties as they are coming still. But we should be thoughtful and mindful of a war that rages around us. I was in the airport the other day and I was picking up George and Judy Zimmick, George who preached here last week, and uh, there was a lot of hustle and bustle around, a lot of people in and out. My kids were buzzing around, and you know, you sort of wait at the top of the stairs for the people to come down, you're wondering if they're your plane or not. And... Different people were reuniting and you kind of people watch in that time. And all of a sudden, two people from the military service came through 
um, the hallway. And they, you know, went in two different directions to their two different families. And they were having their reunion time and, and they were uniting with their kids and embracing with their spouses. And it was just, it was an atmospheric shift all of a sudden because everybody sort of stopped moving and watched them reunite. And all of a sudden, everybody was sort of involving themselves in this family reunion around these servicemen. Actually, it was a serviceman and a servicewoman. And, and, and they were excited about them and happy for them to be home and be safe. And then everybody sort of erupted in applause and clapped for them. And it was because, all of a sudden, we Americans became mindful of the fact that, you know what? We have men and women that are in harm's way serving our country to keep us safe. There's a war going on. It doesn't take long if you Google the idea of the forgotten war to see several articles that date back a couple years where America has kind of gotten sleepy regarding the warfare that's going on. Remember, it used to be in the news all the time. And then about a year ago in August... Uh, It spiked in the news because Barack Obama declared that we're going to be in sort of a no-combat operations mode. But really, there was a headline about salmonella that could be striking us through eggs that sort of superseded that headline, right? Nobody was really interested at all in what's going on, but there are sobering realities. I counseled with a couple different young men regarding their time and their tours of duty. One man who was part of a, a convoy where a suicide renegade um, hit a armored truck and it exploded and he lost friends in that explosion. Another guy who actually had to, um, for the sake of uh, protecting their camp, he as a ranger and leader in a squadron had to shoot and kill a miner who was digging a hole to plant an IED explosive into the ground, and he's sort of suffering through the guilt of that. There's a warfare that's going on, and this really should parallel the sobriety of what we're involved in as Christians. As soon as you sign up and say, Jesus, you are my commander-in-chief, and I am part of your army, guess what? You have a real enemy. You're no longer sort of on Satan's side and and sort of in the world system. Now you are in the world, but you're not of the world. And Satan is wanting to sideline you. And he wants us to, to not remember that he's on the attack. I pulled off of my shelf a book by C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters, this week. Have you ever read or heard of that? It's an allegory of that, that C.S. Lewis wrote of an uncle who is supposedly a demon, and he's counseling his nephew. So it's you've got Uncle Screwtape counseling his nephew, Wormwood. This is no parallel to me having my nephew here this morning. Anyway, but, uh, you know, and basically what's going on is he's he's pumping up, you know, the idea, C.S. Lewis is, that, that warfare is happening all the time and that the devil is involved in the very details and decisions of the Christian life. The devil isn't just involved in the darkest regions of the world, in, in magicians' hearts or, or over in the occultic realms. The devil is involved in the details of Christianity 101. And he wants us to believe that when the apostolic age ended, that the, the devils and demons are now celestial, on the celestial sidelines and they're not involved in our lives or in our thinking whatsoever. 
In the introduction of uh, the screw tape letters, Lewis put it this way. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the demons, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. In other words, we can be in one of two extreme camps. We can either always be focused on every demon that's behind every bush, you know, sort of in a hyped up way where when we get the sniffles, we say, well, that's the demon of sniffles. Or if we have wandering eyes, that's the demon of lust. Instead of taking responsibility. Or on the other hand, we can just be, you know, the sophisticated Christian who's involved in materialism and and sort of climbing the executive ladder where you just don't think at all about the fact that Satan is trying to war against your soul and sideline you spiritually from being on mission. And so what James is doing here is he's saying, look, there are real sins that are involved in the church and behind the scenes, these sins are rooted in earthly thinking, unspiritual thinking, and demonic thinking. So, for our header, Christians must battle a three-front war. We need to battle against three fronts. R.C. Sproul said, look, you know, the reason we lose the battle in terms of the world and the flesh is because we don't think of the third category, which is the devil. We're battling a three-front war here, and the first category is the world. I'm picking that up from the word earthly in verse 15, but... Then that header begins us back at verse 13. This is the earthly thinking. James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What James is doing here is he is saying, Listen, real leadership in the church is leadership that is meek, that is humble, and is wise. He could be talking back to beginning, the beginning of James 3 where he says, Let not many of you become teachers because in doing so you will incur a stricter judgment because you'll be accountable to every word that you're saying. And he, he could be connecting the dots here and saying, Listen, there are some people in the church who believe they have a word from God and they really don't because their life isn't backing it up. And he says, You need to have a life that is filled with, look at that in verse 13, good conduct where you have good works uh, that, is, that are filled with the meekness and wisdom. In other words, to be a godly leader in the church and have the right mindset is not to lead with this proud arrogance or this sort of personal strength where you say, I'm going to take the hill. It's where you come like Jesus did as a servant. Jesus, who is the King of Kings, said in Mark 15, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Remember that? And give his life a ransom for many. And when Jesus washed, washed the disciples' feet, nobody was wondering and looking around, who's the leader here? Jesus was. As he washed the disciples' feet. That's the meekness of wisdom. That's the wisdom that Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah chapter 11, what I read at the top of the hour, how Jesus had the spirit of the Lord rest upon him when he came The spirit of wisdom and understanding. 
This kind of wisdom isn't something that just comes to us in bookish knowledge. This is the meekness of wisdom that comes by the Holy Spirit. It's the wisdom that we pray for. James 1.5 says, If anyone needs wisdom or is lacking wisdom, let him ask from God, who will give it to him generously without reproach. And I think it's the same prayer that we pray where we say, Lord, take over my life. Fill me with wisdom. That's the mindset we need, not an earthly mindset where we try to figure everything out and fix stuff in our own flesh and our own strength, fixing relationships, fixing things in the church. No, it's where we say, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Look at the attributes of this wisdom in verses 17 and 18. It's pure, it's peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. Does that remind you of anything? Remember Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit? Very similar um, in, in the fruit overflow of wisdom that you find in the overflow of being filled by the Holy Spirit. You know, as Christians, because we're sinful, we can easily fall prey into a worldly, earthly mindset. To be earthly means to be earthbound, connected to how the world thinks. Remember, the New Testament says that Satan is the god of this age. He's the prince of the power of the air. The world is is trying to creep in and tell us to run the church like IBM or run our lives like a business instead of loving our children, loving our family, and serving the body of Christ. It's the meekness of wisdom that wins the day here. So we're not just battling sinful mindsets, but we're also battling materialism, Materialism. Look at verse 14a, the beginning. It says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. He's confronting the church saying, listen, there's a sin issue here that's rooted in the world's thinking. It's the idea that, look, I live my life to to get all I can and can all I get. I'm living to, to achieve to succeed, to, to, to compare myself to other people and try to strive to get where they are, right? That's this kind of idolatry where you become jealous over other people. It's bitter jealousy. And he says, you got to battle that. you got to battle materialism. He's saying, who's wise and understanding above you? Who's, who's the smart guy? If you're wrapped up in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, that's the wrong way to be in church. That's not being like Jesus Christ. What was Jesus zealous for? In John 2, the apostles saw Jesus create that cat of nine tails whip and sort of clean out the house and and give judgment in the temple of God. And the apostles remembered the verse in Psalm 69 that that is quoted of Jesus, that zeal for my father's house shall what? Consume me. So it's okay to be consumed. It's okay to be passionate. It's okay to be ambitious. First, uh, Second Corinthians 5, 9 says, whether we're at home or away, we need to make it our ambition or our aim to be pleasing to God. I mean, you can see me up here. Do I seem a little bit ambitious? Do I seem a little excited right now? Well, I am. But I'm excited for God, for his glory, for his church. I'm I'm up here energized to motivate you about God and his glory. I don't want you to be ambitious for yourself. I want you to be ambitious for God because that's the wisdom of God 
not the wisdom that is earthly. This kind of wisdom, this selfish ambition, this, this zealous, bitter jealousy, this is not only earthly, it's also called unspiritual. Unspiritual. This is uh, battling the second front, which is called the flesh. The flesh. Being unspiritual. It's the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 2 where Paul says, the natural-minded man will not receive the things of the Spirit. And what James is saying here is that, look, if you're operating under a bitter jealousy, under a pragmatic, materialistic, ambitious uh, mindset, then that is you acting like a natural-minded person. You're not even acting like a Christian in the way that you think. To be earthly or unspiritual actually means to be acting upon your own natural impulses, as if you don't have the spiritual, the spiritual side to you at all. It's very dangerous, and it's, it's interesting to think, you know, I mean, James is, he's drilling down, he's saying, look, you've, you've kind of been thinking unspiritually like the world thinks, and I'm going to drill down a level deeper and show you that you've actually brought this stuff into your heart. Look here at verse, 15, or verse 14 again. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, here's the next point. This is where I'm picking up the flesh here. It's where you, you take that in your hearts. Do you see those three words? In your hearts. It's where it's a part of who you are. It's so easy to get trapped into this thinking. I was reading a book. It's called In Search of Balance, Keys to a Stable Life. Richard A. Swenson, he's a Christian author who's a medical doctor. And he talks about, uh, he talks about something called the escalation syndrome and how our society is tempting us to want more and more stuff. He calls it a driving force that's relentless. The escalation of the norm is our steadily rising expectations. It says, since progress has been so obliging to give us more and more of everything faster and faster, we've come to expect more. And of course, our advertising industry has forced its way into our psyche, remapping our contentment substrate into an entitlement grid. Do you experience that entitlement grid? The escalation syndrome where you say, man, I want more and more stuff. He talks about how Ronald Reagan Now, again, he lived in Santa Barbara in his ranch, but he said it was a 1,500 square foot house. And he entertained, you know, the Queen of England and Mikhail Gorbachev and and people in there. But he he was content with where he lived, with what he had. So easy to, to start to want more and more stuff or power or things or to want a relationship like somebody else has. One of the earliest bits of wisdom that I received that really stuck with me when I was engaged to Judy is this guy said, look, whatever you do, don't compare your marriage to somebody else's marriage. That will, that will just eat your lunch because you, you know, you see things from the outside and you start to go, yeah, you know, if my marriage was like that, or, you know, if my spouse treated me that way or, or whatever, then life would be happy. That is this kind of idolatry. It's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And he says it's not the wisdom from above. Remember James 1? Again, he says that every good and perfect gift, verse 17, comes down from the Father of lights. He's saying, look, this is not that. This is not from God to be thinking this way. This is what will breed quarrels and strife, James 4.1, in the church. 
And so don't think this way. Because it's earthly and it's unspiritual. And you know what? It's one more thing. It's demonic. But before we get there, let me just tease something out real quickly. We're battling sinful appetites in the flesh. We're battling arrogance and we're battling being an actor when you think in a fleshly way. Look back up at verse 14. He says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. What James is saying here is, look, you need to be honest with yourself. It's so easy as a Christian to lie to yourself, isn't it? Remember Jeremiah 17? The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Our hearts lie to ourselves and we'll say, look, I'm not like that. Really? I mean, do you ever get frustrated that you're not getting something that you want or not getting your way at home, at work or here? That's what this is. He says, don't lie to yourself. Don't don't act as if things are okay in your life and you're being false to the truth. 1 John 1, 8 says the same thing. 1 John 1, 8 is where John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. James is trying to break through that kind of self-deception just like John is here and saying, look, don't be a hypocrite. Don't act as if things are okay. Don't wear a mask. Break it down and say, Lord, I want to be humble. I want your ambition. I don't want bitter jealousy. I want to live for you. Well, third point here, third battlefront. And this is where we need to battle at the deepest level if we're going to solve the flesh in our life and the worldly influence. And that is to see the demonic realm that is encroaching against us. Literally, demonic here is demoniacal. And that means of the character of the demons. The the demons are not the devil. The devil is a fallen angel just like the rest of the demons. But in scripture, the devil is the leader, the accuser the blasphemer, the serpent, and his heavenly minions are the demons. That's what James is talking about here. In James 2, verse 19, he says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So he's talking about demons. In James 4, verse 8, he says um, to submit yourself to God, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So within three chapters, James has mentioned the demonic realm three different times. What's he doing? He's exposing what's happening behind the scenes. He's raising the window shade and saying, listen, I've given you a lot of commands. I've talked to you about living faith. I've talked to you about bridling your tongue. I've talked about how your speech can cause all kinds of harm. How your tongue is literally set on fire by hell. You remember that reference? And what he's doing with these these spiritual references is he's saying, look, all of that moral obedience that you need to have in your life is all connected to resisting the devil and his temptations. Say, what does that look like? What does that look like in my life? You know, maybe back to screw tape letters just a little bit. I, I really like the way that C.S. Lewis brings uh, these things out. He, he's talking about uh, in, this, in this exchange between Uncle Screwtape and Wormwood, they're talking about going after a guy who's involved in materialism. 
This would have been back in the 50s when he was writing. He says, one day he, this guy they're trying to tempt, sat reading. I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. The enemy, speaking of God here, he's talking about God as the enemy. The enemy, of course, was at his elbow in a moment. Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years of work beginning to totter. All of his demon influence was on the line. And it was the idea that God was beginning to enter his thinking and, and he was beginning to, to turn away from the satanic realm and, and think godly thoughts. So the enemy, God, presumably made the counter suggestion. You know how one can never quite overhear what he says to them. That this was more important than lunch. So the counter suggestion is that, you know, this, this godly thought is more important than lunch. He says, the patient brightened up considerably, and by the time I had added, much better come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind, he was already halfway to the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won, and this is where the demon is is winning the battle. He says, I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a number 73 bus going past. And before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had gotten or got into him an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of, quote, real life was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. Have you ever tried to work with somebody and just desperately want them to see that God is real and that scripture is alive and that they need Christ in their life? And you think they're coming along, they're beginning to follow Christ, they're beginning to think godly thoughts, and then all of a sudden it's interrupted. All of a sudden someone, you know, maybe a teenager gets a new girlfriend and that new girlfriend or that girl's new boyfriend is just not godly and steering that person away. Do you ever, you know what I'm talking about? Do you ever think, you know, that could be demonical, demon, demonical, it's, it's demon, it's demon influenced. Do you ever think that? We should. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. He gives a couple other scenarios in here which are kind of funny. He talks about someone who's a new convert and how how the, the demon needs to tempt this new convert in church when he sits down to look down the aisle and see people and judge the way that they sing and judge their appearances. And he talks also about how in a family home situation, you have a mother and a, a son in the home and how the son needs to use harsher words with everything to the point that even asking what time dinner is going to be served creates a blow up in the home. I know that you guys can't relate to any of this, right? I mean, this is just way far afield from your thinking. However, remember, the devil is in the details. He's trying to steer your thinking away from God, away from truth, to sideline you from your mission. It's so easy to think, you know, the demonic realm, that's for the people who are involved in the occult. That's for people who are involved in the mission field. It's not really happening in my heart or in my life. But James is saying if you're operating under these sins, you are involved in something that's demonic. What are the sins? Does he, does he say, well, 
Now we're going to shift gears, and because I've brought up the demon realm in James 3.15, now we're going to shift gears and talk about occult worship. We're going to talk about how that's wrong, how it's wrong to be involved in soothsaying or magic or drugs. Is that what he's talking about? No. Look at verse 16. What is demonic here? For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. What's satanic? Being jealous, being bitter, having worldly ambition. That's where the devil's got you. That's what's demonic here. Now, I'm not saying that the occultic realm isn't scary and sobering and demonic and all of that. But I'm saying that Satan fights us in our own battle to just live the normal Christian life. You're going to see it in a couple other places. Look at Ephesians 6. I think that this is very important to understand. It's very important. Turn over to Ephesians 6, where Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What, how are we supposed to stand against the schemes of the devil? Are we supposed to bark at Satan? Are we supposed to, you know, be aware of what schemes are coming our way and, and diagnose them and fight fire with fire? Is that how we're supposed to take on Satan? He says in verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but there's rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know how we're supposed to take on all of these forces, all of these devils, all of these demons, all these fiery darts, the normal Christian life. Look at, look at what the armor of God is, just real quickly. The whole armor of God, we fasten, verse 14, our belt with the belt of truth. How do we fight the good fight of faith? How do we war against the devil? We read the Bible. <laughs> we get our mind thinking true thoughts. We, we fill our minds with the word of God. We, we take up the breastplate and put it on of righteousness. How do you fight against Satan? Well, you, you live a holy life. All of the commands in Ephesians 4 about guarding your speech, about not quenching the Holy Spirit, about forgiving one another. We, we live the Christian life and we're righteous and that's what extinguishes fiery darts. We take up the shield of faith. What is that? We, we're believing in the gospel. We put on the helmet of salvation. We remember that we're saved and nothing can separate us from the love of God. We, we don't go shipwreck in our faith. We, we just keep believing. We keep walking in the spirit. We pray and we take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's what Jesus did when he was directly confronted by Satan. He just appealed to the word of God. What does Satan want to do to you? I think back into James we, we get clear insight into what he's trying to do. James chapter 3, again, what's demonic? It's being jealous and selfish. You know what the devil wants to do? He wants to make you a jealous person of other people, and he wants to fill your heart and mind with pride. The devil wants you to fall in the same sins that he fell into. Remember First Timothy 3 says, don't put a novice or a new believer into spiritual leadership. 1 Timothy 3, verse 6. Don't put a novice 
into the role as an elder. Why? Because they will become puffed up with pride and conceit and will fall into the same condemnation that the devil did. What's that condemnation? It's the condemnation where Satan, as as testified in Isaiah 14, said, I will be like God. I will ascend to God's throne. Remember that? And in Isaiah 14, it says that God sent him out of heaven into judgment. Nothing new under the sun. Eve, when she was in the Garden of Eden, in the land of perfection there, was tempted by Satan, and Satan was trying to tempt Eve to be proud, just like he had fallen to the same temptation. And in Genesis 3, 5, he said, Eve, listen, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will not die. You will be like God. That's what Satan wants to do to us. He wants us to to just forget about God and say, you know what, I'm going to take control of my own life. I'm going to just be zealous for my own ambition, my own prowess, my own fame, my own glory, my own self-pity party, my own this, my own that. And I'm just going to forget about Satan, forget about the devils, and it's all about me. And I'm I'm the guy or I'm the gal. and, And that's what creates disorder and every vile practice in our lives. And that is, from the pit of hell, that is demonic wisdom to be that way. Do you want to get an insight into the demonic realm? It's being tempted to be proud. It's the same thing that Satan fell into and he wants to drag us down into the same thing. It's the same idea that 1 Peter 5 brings up where Peter says the devil is out as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's 1 Peter 5.8. The context there is are two things. The church is suffering persecution. And Peter is trying to set the church up on solid ground and saying, look, you've got elders, you've got spiritual leaders. Verse 5, you need to, young men, you need to clothe yourselves with humility. Don't try to live the Christian life in your own strength, with your own youthful zeal, but come under the eldership and clothe yourselves in humility. And by the way, if you're anxious, cast all your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. And then guess what? Resist the devil. That's... That's the context for for what Peter's talking about. He's saying the devil is prowling. He's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. Normal Christian life. We're anxious people. We cast our cares upon the Lord instead of trying to muscle through in our own strength. We don't try to live the Christian life in our own strength, but we come under leadership. We clothe ourselves with humility towards each other. And guess what that's doing? That is resisting the devil. The normal Christian life, living it in holy obedience, living out the armor of God in our lives, is fighting against the demonic hosts. There's a demonic realm and there's a demonic influence. It's a warfare that is very, very real. One more reference, real fast. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 8 is where... Paul is confronting false teachers in the church. He's already in 1 Timothy chapter 4 talked about the doctrines of demons that are in the church, false teaching. But he's saying there are false teachers and the false teachers are just like Janus and Jambres. Remember, those are the two jokers from Exodus chapter 7 that Pharaoh called to combat Moses when Moses was standing up for the nation of Israel. He's saying, let my people go. And he shows the miracle, but where he throws the staff down and it becomes a serpent. And Janus and Jambres try to 
mirror that miracle with their own serpent wizardry. And ultimately in that context, in Exodus chapter 7, in verses uh, 11 and, and following, 11 and 13, the issue is whether or not Pharaoh's heart is going to soften or whether it's going to harden. Do you remember that context? Pharaoh, again, hardens his heart and doesn't let the children of Israel go. Where is the real spiritual conflict? Is it in the, the miracle wizardry or is it, found up in, is it bound up in whether or not Pharaoh is going to obey God or not? It's all found in obedience. Spiritual warfare really comes down to whether or not our hearts are going to melt before God or we're going to harden our hearts. That's the issue. Satan wants the church to be, be hard-hearted, to be bound up with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And God's wisdom instead is peaceable, is gentle. Look at verse 17. It's full of mercy. It's impartial and sincere. Does that characterize you? A softness in your heart? Because if it does, then you're fighting the good fight of faith in the right way. You're fighting all three realms. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Let me just apply this for a few more moments. Number one, just as a review, overview of what we've talked about. Do you have an unhealthy regard for the demonic realm? Number one, are you a materialist giving no thought of demonic attack whatsoever? Just bound up in, you know, meat and potatoes. I live, I die, I read the news, go to bed and do it over again. And there's no thought of demonic temptation at all. Or are you a magician who blames every sin you know, the sniffle demon and the lust demon um, and sickness on demons. I mean, we've got to take, take blame, right? Blame for our sins. We can't be like Flip Wilson, that great theologian who said the devil made me do it. We've got to take responsibility. That was a joke. All right, number two. It was a failed joke. Number two, steps to take to wake up to spiritual warfare. What if you're kind of asleep to the spiritual warfare and you want, you, you want to enter into this, but you need to know more about what's going on? You need to reengage your mission. And I would recommend, you know, reading some books on spiritual warfare. I've got some that, that I could recommend to you personally. But you need to read the Word of God and see the places in Scripture where the spiritual realm is alive. And then re-engage the mission of the Great Commission that we need to, we need to recognize we're all soldiers in God's kingdom. Second, seek out fellow soldiers. Do you have friends that you can talk to like this? Because if you don't, you're really vulnerable. As a Christian, you need to be able to talk to people in transparent dialogue and connect with them where you can say, listen, I want to talk to you about some sins in my life and I want to talk on three levels. The world, the influence of the world, the flesh, my own sinful proclivities to do certain things. And I want to talk about Satan and the devil and how I believe he's attacking me. If you have safe relationships like that, then you can be in the foxhole together as a warrior for God. And you've got to have fellow soldiers to do that with. Um, third, remember you have live enemies. Satan is alive and well. He's a roaring lion. He's out to devour you. And then in response to that, worship the commander of the Lord's army. That's Joshua five thirteen to 15. We've got our commander in chief. You know, one time I remember hearing a person teach on the devil and he said, who's afraid of the devil? None of us should be afraid of the devil. 
Well, I understand his point. He's saying greater is he, Jesus, who is in you than he who is in the world. I mean, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Devil cannot rip salvation away from us. He cannot snatch us from the Father's hands. But we still, I think, at the same time, should be sobered by satanic influence. We've got to remember to cling to the commander of the Lord's army, that Jesus is on our side and he gives us the victory as we cling to him. All right, number three, what drives you? This is where I'm really trying to get to the kernel sin issue that you might be struggling with. Are you driven by your own personal success and goals? Because James and the word of God and the spirit of God hopefully is helping you to open your hands up and say, Lord, I hold my goals with an open hand. And I may want a certain career goal or a certain relationship goal or a certain church goal, but I'm holding these things with open hands and saying, Lord, I don't want to be ensnared by worldly, earthly, or satanic, or unspiritual thinking to say, I deserve something that I shouldn't have yet, or maybe not at all. Are we using the Spirit's wisdom or the world's pragmatics? Are you jealous for what you don't have or jealous for God? It's a good way to counter that sin and say, Lord, I'm excitable, I am zealous, I I am ambitious, but I'm ambitious for your glory first and foremost. Trade selfish ambitions for God's ambitions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace to be in your word. I pray that each of us would hold with an open hand our own selfish ambitions and give them to you. Lord, let us not fall down before, bowing down before the idols of this world. Let us, Lord, allow your Holy Spirit to enter into our minds and our thinking so that we are filled with truth and filled with um, godly thoughts that are peaceful and harmonious, that are undivisive, but uniting thoughts. Because you have transformed us and given us new hearts that can submit to you. Lord, we recognize there is an enemy out there and we don't want to fall asleep to the forgotten war because this war is raging against us. But God, we thank you that we have power from your Holy Spirit to persevere and to fight the good fight all the way to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.